I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. If China didn't care about world opinion, it is likely that hundreds, if not more, Hong Kongers would now be dead. Based on what happened in 1989, the world believes there was indeed a massacre in Tiananmen Square back then, but we'll never be sure. The truth of that remains carefully hidden. They got away with it then because they could. There were no mobile phones or cameras back then. But this time, 30 years later, though the situation remains exceptionally tense in Hong Kong, there has been no great massacre of the protesters in Hong Kong. My first cousin lived in Hong Kong for many years, and he has many friends still there. When the protests first began, he felt sure China was about to crush it with brutality. Of course, that may still happen. What is at stake for China? What's at stake for the Hong Kongers? What are the protests, which have continued with massive crowds for months? What's it all about? Is it possible the protesters could achieve their goals? Or is that merely naive, wishful thinking? And what about the recent bill passed unanimously in the House and Senate and signed by the president in support of Hong Kong? How does that factor in? All this must be seen in the historical context of student protests in general, how effective or not. With us today is Dave Lindorf an American investigative reporter who writes for The Nation, Salon, London Review of Books, and Counterpunch. Uh, Dave Lindorf, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Dave Lindorf is the founder of ThisCan'tBeHappening.net, and he's the author of four books. He was a 1990s Hong Kong China correspondent for Business Week. His work was highlighted by Project Censored in 2004, 2011, and 2012. The title of his recent article in Counterpunch is... Student protesters are walking a tightrope in Hong Kong, and we can just picture what that means. We all know Hong Kong as a very busy, intensely capitalist region, which is not exactly part of China. Please take a couple of minutes and tell listeners a little about the history and its actual status, city or what, and what major changes happened in 1997 to set this all up. Well, basically, Hong Kong occupies a really particular and uh, very um, irritating position in Chinese history. It was conquered by the British during the Opium War, which was uh, this unbelievable situation where Britain forced China to allow it to import opium into the country and hook, you know, millions of Chinese people on the drug because Britain had to have something to sell to China that that would um, bring money back to Britain because they were buying so much Chinese stuff. Uh-huh. So, you know, it was a real, like, just the most outrageous example of colonial uh, power and exploitation in China, and it's a black mark uh, in Chinese history. 
that Hong Kong was, um, you know, basically given to the British on a hundred-year lease. And that hundred years came up, uh, and uh, the Chinese just basically said, okay, now you have to hand it over. So the lease was actually on the new territories, which are a large expanse of largely undeveloped mountain land uh, on a peninsula that comes down to Hong Kong Island. Hong Kong Island was just outright conquered by the British. But the thing is, Hong Kong has no water. So uh, it's a massive metropolis, but it needed water from the new territories. So basically, the Chinese had them over a barrel. When the lease was expiring on the new territories, um, the Chinese could have cut off the water to Hong Kong. So the British realized they had to give it all up at the same time. So that was the 97, uh, 1997. So as that approached in the 80s, uh, negotiations started for how the handover would work. And, um, you know, the British were pushing for um, allowing it to be uh, a uh, free, you know, democratic kind of city. The Chinese, not so much. Uh-huh. And um, this was under Deng Xiaoping, um, who, as we know, ordered the crackdown on Tiananmen Square. And, um, you know, he was a no-nonsense guy. And um, so the it got pretty nasty around the time I was there. I was covering Hong Kong uh, and China for Business Week from the bureau in Hong Kong and going in and out of China. I'm, I'm fluent in Chinese, and so they had hired me for that position. And um, while we were living in Hong Kong, it was very tense because the, the last British governor, was uh, Patton, was not granting a lot of democratic reforms to Hong Kong until the very, very end. They they basically kept this system, this colonial system, in place where most of the power in the uh, Legislative Council, which was Hong Kong's sort of parliament, was in the hands of representatives of the various industries. You know, the industry groups would appoint somebody to be their representative on the LegCo, and very few got elected. I was like 12 when I first was there, and it gradually rose. And then right at the end, just before they handed it over, they opened it up to more broad elections, and the Chinese saw that as a betrayal. Um, you know, it was like, you don't want to have the democracy, you Brits, but you're going to hand us a, a uh, uncontrollable democratic government. And and that didn't fly. So right at 97, July 97, on the handover, uh, the Chinese just said all the LegCo members, all these elected Democrats, uh, were out, and there would be a new election after the handover was over. They appointed a a temporary uh, government of appointees loyal to Beijing to... uh, handle things right on the, after the handover and then there was were new elections and only uh a small fraction of the uh of the LegCo 70 LegCo members were elected. It's all right. So <laughs> excuse me. Uh, yeah, I I wonder, you know, in 90 so Basically 97 started out, you know, the middle of 97 started out with a uh, not too democratic government 
but when the elections were held, finally, all the elected positions did go uh, to Democratic Party members and their supporters, ah. so people who really wanted uh, uh, to continue Democratic rule. So they're right from the beginning, you know, the British kind of set it up, you could argue, so that there would be a, this this uh, hostility between mm. Hong Kong people and China. I mean, they were making a mess. You know, it could have been handled much more gracefully um, and maybe not uh, gotten the Chinese also uptight in Beijing. But uh, <laughs> they felt that they had been that their handover had been sabotaged, and so they became very uh, concerned about controlling unrest and pressures for more democracy in Hong Kong, and it's been a very slow haul. So it sounds like right from the get-go in 97, it hasn't been uh, smooth. I mean, uh, Hong Kong's economy has been functioning quite nicely, but uh, perhaps some of the people of Hong Kong uh, may have perceived that... uh, that uh, Beijing, the central government, broke its promise to the people of Hong Kong. Yes, that's see. Part of the deal was that that you know because because Beijing was so suspicious after the way the British handled the handover, they were like trying to really control things through their appointees. The people they appointed were were real uh, you know uh, loyalists to Beijing, and Hong Kong people naturally. Uh, saw that suspiciously, and so they all started really pushing for more democratic uh, control. The the original negotiated deal was that there would be a gradual evolution to uh-huh. a fully elected LegCo, all 70 members elected from geographical districts and, and the industrial appointees gone, and that by, I forget the date, it was going to be... Uh, by already by now, uh, the LegCo would be fully elected, and the uh, and then there would finally be an open election for the chief executive position, which was the equivalent of a president of Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, meanwhile, was promised to be a locally autonomous. Uh, special administrative region of China, a unique status right. in which uh, foreign affairs would be handled by China, immigration issues would be handled by China, but uh, within the confines of Hong Kong, the people would have full autonomy through their local government to make their own laws. Their court system would continue to be under British common law. Judges mm. who were, you know, many of whom were Brits, uh, you know, white white guilos. Uh, judges and also local judges would continue to be judges, and the system would function under you know a rule of law, which is not true in China. So uh, the so, courts there are are very much uh, subservient to the goals of the central government and the party. So this was really important to China, by the way, you know, because China still. Uh, is a very difficult place for foreign investment because because of the lack of predictable laws uh, governing property and investment and you know uh, legal agreements uh, on commerce. So uh, basically, the easiest way to get foreign money invested in China is to have Chinese companies listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and to have the investments be made in Hong Kong under Hong Kong's uh, common law-based contract law. 
So for China, it's still important to get when they want to get money for their uh, largely state-controlled corporations. Those corporations called red chips list a certain share of their stock on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So maybe a minority ownership of their stock is uh, controlled by investors, uh, theoretically at least, who buy the stock and trade it on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And and for China to lose that, even today, uh, would be a uh, a devastating blow to their economy. And that's what keeps Hong Kong as free as it is, ah. is that the Chinese can't walk in and totally trash the legal system and turn it into a Chinese legal system. Just the investment would dry up. Uh, it's funny how, you know, as, as Bob Dylan once said, money doesn't uh, talk, it swears. It's powerful, the money. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, so it's been, there's been contention, apparently, ever since the handover in 1997, so here we are in just about 2020. How and why did the current protests all start? What is their focus? What what happened to well, explain the, it? The, the, the focus began uh, on a question relating to the Chinese legal system, uh, to the Hong Kong legal system being under threat because China uh, wanted. Uh, well, China took advantage actually of a. Uh, a case that came up actually from Hong Kong, where there had been a murder, uh, domestic murder, and uh, the murderer fled from Taiwan to Hong Kong, and uh, Taiwan wanted to be able to extradite the guy and try him in Taiwan under Taiwanese courts, which are decent courts uh, following a rule of law, but people in Hong Kong didn't saw that as a uh, as a threat to their own local control and they said no uh this has to be done through the Hong Kong courts and um then China uh had um their puppet uh CEO you know chief executive of Hong Kong Carrie Lam uh-huh. uh, put in a law that would have allowed extradition of people to face uh, justice in China, hmm. and, but they referred to the Taiwanese case, and um, she she referred to the Taiwanese case because that was you know a sympathetic thing. Everybody thought the guy was guilty, so you know it was a nice case for them to use. But uh, Hong Kong people saw through it as a uh, as China wanting to get its hands on uh, on people who were violating Chinese law in Hong Kong um, and be able to grab them and take them legally into China to face trial in China. It was particularly sensitive because uh, a year or two ago, China actually came into Hong Kong and furtively captured some uh, editors and publishers of a uh of a, a bunch of books that were writing uh you know really uh dirt on chinese leaders including uh xi jinping um you know telling about their uh, corrupt, their uh extramarital affairs and stuff very lurid stuff yeah. some of it not really backed up by fact but nonetheless embarrassing to chinese leaders and so they spirited these guys, I think it was three of them, away from Hong Kong and subjected them to arrest, interrogation, uh, uh, they claimed torture, um, 
you know, and possible imprisonment in China for stuff that they had done in Hong Kong, which has a free press, and for, and and which Whoa. you know, the only way you could prosecute them would be libel, and even that's difficult against a public figure in uh, in Hong Kong law. So, you know, Hong Kong people were really upset about the. Uh, kidnapping of those guys and bringing them to China to face trial. And they brought a lot of pressure, and finally they were released back to Hong Kong by the Chinese government. But when this th- when this new law allowing extradition, that, w- that would have allowed extradition of people to face charges in China, for th- even for acts done in Hong Kong, <clears throat> that the Chinese felt violated Chinese law, uh, that really that really upset people, and so you started having huge protests against that law, demanding that it be rescinded, which it finally has been. But yes. you know, Carrie Lam was uh, pretty tone deaf to the protests, and also I think under a lot of pressure from Beijing not to uh, retract and so until the protests had basically shut the city down. Uh, the financial district and everything, um, the law was not rescinded. She did it too late. Uh, and by then, you know, the protests had gotten, and the demands had gotten much greater. People uh-huh. were saying China had reneged on full elections of all 70 of the uh, of the LegCo members. It was still only half, 35. And um, they also said that China had reneged on allowing the popular election of the CEO, uh, so of the chief executive. So uh, it grew, you know, as as the as the protests grew, the demands grew, sure. and then uh, you know when the police started uh, behaving uh, much more aggressively towards the protests and started not firing just tear gas, but rubber bullets, and in one case, even a a real bullet, um, then the protests got even more uh, potent, and the the protesters started throwing bricks at the cops, and then uh, then gasoline bombs, you know, like, uh, it's hard to call them Molotov cocktails, because they weren't using glass bottles, they were using water bottles, plastic water bottles, so they more sprayed uh, flames rather than blowing up the way a, a really well-done Molotov cocktail does. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't but, been familiar yeah. with the uh, with the uh, uh, techniques of uh, Molotov cocktails. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, right. you have to read the terrorist cookbook. But, you know, but, Actually, but, I knew that guy. Yeah. You know the things were the things can be very dangerous. They can oh, be they, yeah. like in, in uh, protests against the Soviet Union in uh, Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Oh. They were used to disable tanks and stuff. You know that they, they, they can be quite potent if they're in a glass bottle and and done right. But uh, we're not doing instructions on on terrorist tactics. But well, you know the the point was that you know throwing flaming bottles at cops was. <laughs> Pretty aggressive protests. If that had, had I, I wrote an article that if that had been done here in the U.S., you know, Ooh. the Senate uh, passed that bill about criticizing the brutality of Hong Kong police. But they did. They our police are much more aggressive than the Hong Kong police were for all the, you know, the firing of rubber bullets and everything. Oh my uh, goodness! If, you, if we had protests here that uh, we were throwing. Uh, 
gasoline bombs at police. Uh, there would be hundreds of casualties. The police would pull out yeah. their AR-15s and mow people down at that point. We haven't had that. No, uh, we, haven't. we haven't seen protests like that. So, Well, um, as I had a... Uh uh, a college professor, a, a poli- political science professor, who defined uh, politics as the economy of violence. And that's exactly what it is, always has been. For those who may have just tuned in, uh, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with our guest, Dave Lindorf, American investigative reporter, who's written an article, uh, this time in Counterpunch, uh, titled, Student Protesters Are Walking a Tightrope in Hong Kong. What what do you mean by that? I mean, they well tell us about the tightrope. How you came up with that, and well, they've the fallen off. The tightrope is that uh, Hong Kong exists as a free society. It's a very free society. I mean, you can say anything you want. You can publish wow. anything you want. Um, uh, it's got a very feisty press, um, and has always had one uh, in the last you know generation, and. Um, and it's it's very free in other ways. I mean, just just people's behavior. You you can you can do a lot of weird weird stuff and not get bothered. Um, it, it, in that way, it's a it's a very free society, unlike China, totally uh, right. the opposite of China, and um, very international. A lot of foreign people have residence there. It's very easy to get a job there and a work permit from abroad. Um, Borders are quite open, and um, you know that uh, that automatically makes things very tenuous uh, in its relationship with China, which has a very tight and and increasingly tight now under Xi Jinping uh, rules and controls over what you can do and say, and who you know you certainly can't organize an oppositional party or organization or have a a march. Organize a march down the street over some issue, so particularly if it relates to freedom and uh, democracy or whatever. So um, <clears throat> they worry about leakage from Hong Kong into China, um, and so um, you know the there's a question of how far any protest in Hong Kong can go. If there's twenty thousand. Uh, Chinese troops garrisoned in Hong Kong under the agreement of the uh, you know the handover. Uh, it's not supposed to go above that. They're not supposed to leave their barracks uh, without a request from the Hong Kong government. And what happened during this demonstration is that uh, you know people kept watching those barracks, <laughs> and and uh, it does appear that sometimes some of the soldiers probably did go out uh, uh you know like disguised as uh sure. as triads you know wearing white t-shirts and stuff and helping to beat up students because most of the triads don't look like uh buff weightlifters <laughs> and some of the <laughs> some of the crew cut guys that were beating up students uh in Yunlong and stuff uh areas where triad gangs are uh are prevalent uh did not look like gangsters they looked like pla soldiers but uh it was hard to tell some people said they heard them talking mandarin which would be a giveaway um 
this the you know the triad thugs speak Cantonese, local Cantonese. Um, so we, you know, there's some evidence that might have happened. But on top of that, just the fact that there are those twenty thousand troops and that they were shown uh, doing drills in riot control techniques with uh, bars, metal bars that ah. uh, they could push with and stuff. Uh, and then you know to 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 sort of underline uh, what could happen, China uh, brought in a, a whole bunch of troops and anti-personnel carrier or, or personnel carriers and, uh, uh, you know, equipment to Shenzhen right across the border from the new territories wh- and, and had them all, you know, parked in, you know, position to move into Hong Kong right, right near the border. So, you know, people saw those and, you know, that message was, okay, well, we're here and yeah. we're ready to move in if we're invited. <laughs> right? So that w- that was sitting there in everybody's mind. Sure. And I think there was a lot of concern that that would happen. I kind of doubted it because, um, you know, the the Hong Kong police is a police force of 31,000 uh, guys in a city of 8 million. That's pretty consistent with, say, New York police. And, and they they showed that they had a pretty good ability to, uh-huh. you know, clear the streets when they really wanted to and stuff. And they, they didn't mind using, uh, you know, what would be pretty difficult tactics to resist. You know, beanbag guns and... Uh, and rubber bullets are pretty severe deterrent. Yes. Uh, not to mention ten thousand rounds of, of I think it was ten thousand rounds of uh, uh, tear gas or CS gas, mm. and and also mustard gas. So um, they're pretty well. The, and they were threatening people with riot charges that could put them in jail for ten years. They they used a lot of um, aggressive tactics yeah. to try to control the protests. And it was a question I I think it had to be in the minds of even the most uh, um, you know de- de- dedicated protesters uh, and most um, assertive protesters that if they went too far uh, that China could bring the troops in. So um, you know they 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 limited their attacks uh, their resistance to the police. The tactic they eventually adopted was to go onto the campuses because mm-hmm. there is a sort of a sanctity to the campuses that the cops were not supposed to go into campuses that was supposed to be left to the universities. There's sort of a, right. uh, I think part of it is a is the history of the Cultural Revolution in China when campuses were just totally destroyed and faculty mm-hmm. members were tortured and, you know, brutalized and uh, and the university system basically, higher education shut down in China for, you know, 10 years in the Cultural Revolution at huge ex- cost to uh, China's development. And so I think that one of the things that came out of that is a kind of a sanctity of the university feeling particularly in Hong Kong. So uh, so the students took over the campuses and felt like, okay, now the police can't get us and we can, you know, make our protest be student strikes. And uh, But in the end, when it got to uh, um, China, Chinese U, two of the universities, Chinese U and Chinese Polytechnic, um, the the police decided enough's enough, and they uh, tried to go into the campuses 
um, the, the campuses reacted differently. The students at Chinese U uh, quietly left uh, in, in one night and left an empty campus. So when the cops came in, uh, nobody was there. And so the campus didn't get totally trashed. Uh, at, at Poly, the students decided to resist and made it into a fortress Yikes. and got uh, a huge amount of uh, gasoline out of cars that were parked in the garage of the school. And uh, so they had uh, you know, an enormous amount of bottles that they were throwing at cops when they would try to come in through the... Uh, it's kind of a walled-in campus, so for the police to come in, there weren't that many ways to come in, and when they would try yeah. to come in, they'd be hit with a wall of fire. Oh, my <laughs> so, uh, so it's a real standoff, and, and meanwhile, uh, that led to uh, a huge support for the students with uh, parents uh-huh. and you know just regular citizens coming to the streets around the campus to defend the students against the police, and that was a real... Uh, struggle for quite some time. Well, there's always the PR battle, you know, winning the hearts and minds. And in your article uh, in uh, Counterpunch, you describe the broad community of Hong Kong politically as being, quote, staid, usually conservative, business-minded bankers and shop owners. One might think that they would, at least for a while, distance themselves from the protesting students. What is the reality and why? I would not, you know, I... When I was, I actually was in Hong Kong. My wife was giving a concert uh, at Baptist University, which is not really a Baptist school anymore. It's one of the uh, major Chinese public universities. Um, she had taught there for uh, six years while I was doing my journalism there, and um, she so she was there to give a concert, and we were we were there till uh, I think June second. Uh, of this year, and uh, I talked to, I had met with journalists because I knew there was a lot of talk about the anger over the uh, over the extradition treaty, and there were protests already that were you know relatively small, but we were coming up on the anniversary of uh, of the uh, Tiananmen massacre, which every year in Hong Kong turns into a huge protest rally, a memorial rally. Uh, in Victoria Park, and then people usually march somewhere. And uh, <clears throat> depending on the current status of relations between China and Hong Kong, those demonstrations get huge or smaller. And so it was, there was talk about this was going to be a huge demonstration because of the concerns about the extradition treaty. And, you know, the people I talked to, journalists that I knew, Chinese journalists in Hong Kong that I knew, uh, they, they were expecting a lot of confrontation with police and, and stuff. But nobody thought that what happened would happen. That you know, we see, we had seen the huge uh, crowds in the umbrella strikes uh, a couple of years before, but those were very peaceful and um, you know were more general in their demands. The, this really got focused, and uh, and it, it was right after I, I we flew home. I'm sorry I did because uh, uh, I w- could have been there, but uh, you know it really erupted, and and the police reaction was much uh, more serious than it was during the Hong Kong during the uh, Umbrella Movement, Occupy Movement, actually, um, and um, and it 
it spiraled at that point. And what, what was astounding to me, having lived in Hong Kong and having seen the kind of uh, passivity and even uh, uh, opposition of a lot of Hong Kong people to uh, young people's protests was that when the police started really brutalizing protesters, it just, uh, and particularly over this issue, uh, it led to uh, a swelling support for the students among the you know, an, an astonishing number of Hong Kong people. I mean, when you have a city of 8 million and 2 million of them are in the street, that's that's an amazing amount of support. Yeah, that really is. They they know the power of the streets over there. Yeah, and, and it wasn't just old people. I mean, when you looked at who was out there, it was parents, it was grandparents. Um, you know, everybody had ki- had kids that were out protesting, and so everybody was concerned and and uh, about their safety and angry at their treatment, and it just, uh, it, I mean, everything was handled wrong by the government, yeah. and uh, and then the students, you know, and the kids, uh, and a lot of these weren't students. I mean, there were sure. a lot of as uh, I, there was this great article in uh, the New Yorker uh, in the current issue of the New Yorker. Uh, by a uh, Chinese woman who's an American but uh, speaks fluent Mandarin uh, because she came here when she was eight and had Chinese parents. And and she uh, spent time in Hong Kong and was able to to really get into meeting some of the activists. And it was clear from her article that a lot of these are working-class kids. You know, they might be in school or, or dropouts, but uh, they basically were from working class families, and uh, you know they, 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 the, the I think part of the power of the protests was that that it, right. the, the kids in Hong Kong feel very isolated in this small uh, city state as it were, mm-hmm. uh, opportunities have gotten less um, because the economy there hasn't been growing rapidly. Um, so uh, there, there's a sense that, you know, you go to university, uh, you probably aren't going to be able to leave and emigrate to Canada or the U.S. U.S. is, is not an easy place to emigrate anymore. Yeah. And um, so they they're stuck in Hong Kong, and there and there aren't those opportunities, and they don't look at China as they used to look at it as. Well, China's evolving, you know, we'll we'll all right. be all right. But China's not evolving; it's kind of going backwards right now in terms of freedoms, and uh, and even its economy isn't doing as well. So they just feel stuck, and uh, and they feel like the government isn't uh, offering them much, so they're angry. And that fed into it, too. Well, I wanted to ask, which brings up the next question. In 2000, during the campaign, when Al Gore was running for president, I remember him promoting what he called constructive engagement with China. The hope was Mm -hmm. that the introduction of a free market economy would promote democracy and lessen harsh authoritarianism in China. Uh, How has that worked out? Well, you know that was always a joke. That was that was a sop uh, to uh, cover the desire of corporate America to go into China and make money. And they they came up with this. You know, it was sort of the. It's based on uh, the Friedman 
Friedman-esque uh, theory that uh, democracy and freedom are inter are you know like uh, Siamese twins. You know, you you can't have one without the other. Was basically Friedman Milton Friedman's theory, uh, which was already disproved in in Chile. <laughs> And oh, when they sent in the uh, the Chicago boys from the from Friedman's school and you know pushed that idea uh, on Pinochet uh, Pinochet's you know coup government, so we've had uh, we've had object lessons in how <laughs> absurd it is to claim that you know if you have capitalism you'll have freedom. Uh, the only way you get freedom under a capitalist state like Chile is to overthrow it. Yes, and. You know, the results in China were uh, similar. You know, they they got all that money flowing in, uh, but it led to uh, a super rich class in China, uh, and you know, uh, they they managed to create a huge middle class, but they still left a huge lot of people on the bottom, with uh, you know, living in they're still living in dirt huts out in the countryside and they're still living in little brick uh, structures illegally built alongside walls on the sidewalk in cities like Shanghai and Beijing. Well, they're really, uh, you know, repressive <laughs> and authoritarian. And as you mentioned before, they're worried about leakage, which was an interesting word. They, they, I wonder if the powers in Beijing might sense uh, that there could be some... Uh, uh, contagion, if you will, from this. Uh, and they're trying to, uh, the powers in Beijing, I believe, are trying to paint the uprising as a Western-sponsored uh, movement designed to topple the governing Communist Party. Yeah, they- that's the only argument they can make. You know, they used to say, well, you know, we'd like to have democracy too, but, you know, China is not ready for it. Uh, but but that's a hard sell if people in China uh, get to understand what's going on in Hong Kong or, or in Taiwan, which has a vibrant democracy um, these days. Um, it, it's, uh, I mean, the fear, the fear in China and of leakage in Hong Kong is really uh, great because, um, for example, the the television stations and radio stations in Hong Kong, which are, uh, you know, robust and free, uh, broadcast. And those broadcasts are obtainable, readily obtainable in Shenzhen and even as far away as uh, as Guangzhou, the capital city of the surrounding Guangdong province. And that language is the same language of the you know, television and radio in Hong Kong. So there, you know, you've got several hundred million people who are listening to broadcasts of free uh, media in Hong Kong. So even though China controls the Internet uh, with a uh, a nationwide intranet, um, like just like, you know, a corporate intranet, they can't control what people are picking up on their TVs and their radios. So there's a lot of leakage right just right there. And then you also have uh, you know a, a much more free travel uh, now between the SAR of Hong Kong and China itself. So people from Hong Kong go into China all the time. They have relatives there. They go there. People know what's going on uh, beyond what they can get from the Internet in China. So China really worries about, you know, people saying how great it is in Hong Kong or how great it is in Taiwan. 
Um, it's one of the, and it, it belies the uh, argument that while we're not ready for elections and democracy and free speech here in, in China. Wow, and uh, <laughs> money changes everything. It does, and China, the, the leaders in China these days, they're not the, you know, harsh Maoists of old. I guess they're a different kind of uh, harsh uh, leader, but, you know, they're, the territory of Hong Kong, as you describe, is a reliable source of international investment capital for Chinese-listed companies, which we talked about a little bit. Uh, they, how does this factor into China's options and the hopes of protesters? They, Hong, China, Beijing must be kind of tearing their hair out as to what they can do here because they want to keep the, uh, the gravy train going. But uh, Yeah, they're, cons- they're definitely constrained by... Uh, not wanting to kill the golden goose of Hong Kong, right. and and uh, you know there were there were concerns when I was there that you know maybe Shanghai would supplant Hong Kong as the entry. It has its own stock market and stuff, and the, that you know it would somehow supplant Hong Kong and make it uh, uh, just extraneous to the needs of China for capital. But it hasn't worked out that way. The uh, the Chinese stock market is pretty corrupt. And uh, uh, so companies have not used that as their entry point for investing in Chinese companies. Mm. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who do invest in that market uh, and you know take huge risks because you can make money on it when it booms. But um, it's very manipulated by the Chinese government and stuff. And and so Hong Kong remains really important. Uh-huh. Hong Kong's important in another way too. Is that there's sort of a subterfuge which was threatened by this uh, this con- congressional bill. And it's why China got so upset by the bill. And that is that Hong Kong is part of the World Trade Organization and uh, on its own uh, and remains mm-hmm. so, even though it's part of China now. And the U.S. Uh, basically lets uh, Hong Kong products into this country without tariffs, right? Mm-hmm. So while... while Trump has imposed all these uh, punitive tariffs on, on Chinese goods. He hasn't touched Hong Kong tariffs, and uh, and there's this whole subterfuge where things get sent uh, from China to Hong Kong, and then some little tweak is put uh-huh. on the on the product, and it's called made in Hong Kong, and then it comes into the U.S. without a tariff. Uh. And and if they suddenly hit those with tariffs, a, a, an enormous volume of trade that still comes to the U.S. from China would be, um, you know, suddenly cut off. Uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uh, priced right anymore for the U.S. market. So they might like to really crack down, but they recognize it's about the market. And it, you mentioned a little bit about the, uh, I mean, this, this new bill that passed the, U- the House and Senate in America, the so-called Human Rights and Democracy Act, that passed unanimously. The president actually signed it. Uh, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, we saw videos of uh, protesters joyfully waving a lot of American <laughs> flags in gratitude. What? What do you? How is Beijing reacting? How will this play out in the ongoing exactly. drama? You know, that played. That actually was stupid of them because it plays into this meme ah, that yes. you know <laughs> this is all a construct of CIA and Soros money uh, funding these protests, which is ludicrous. I mean, I'm sure that uh, that the CIA 
uh, isn't missing an opportunity to meddle uh, and try to encourage uh, this uh, discomfort for China uh, of of all these protests in Hong Kong. But um, there's no way that, that, first of all, it's insulting to the students of Hong Kong to think that they're doing this because they want to make some money. You know, know, pocket change from Soros or something. This is not uh, a color revolution uh, like in Ukraine that was funded with, what, $5 billion, according to Hillary Clinton, of uh, U.S. money through the NED and, you know, various other uh, AID and things like that. These these, uh, NGO sort of uh, government connected NGOs uh, that mess around with. with foreign governments and their elections, um, this was a a uh, very definitely um, homegrown uh, protest movement in Hong Kong. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. That's what you're listening to. And our guest today is Dave Lindorf, who's written an article uh, titled uh, "Students Are Walking a Student Protesters Are Walking a Tightrope in Hong Kong." He's written for uh, many different uh, international uh, publications and has spent some time in Hong Kong, so he knows wherever he speaks. I know, I know it's, it's kind of a mystery there. And uh, as it turns out, both uh, you and I were involved in, in protests uh, over the years during the anti-war movement, during America's mm-hmm. war, Vietnam War. Are there some similarities, comparisons to Hong Kong protests? Have they learned from our mistakes? I mean, I think one of the mistakes that was made here was going too far out. And, and like the weather underground, when they did those bombings and things, that, uh, that, war, that, that took a lot of the wind out of the sails. And I, I wonder, you know, in, in the history of protests, there's often a burst of support in the beginning. But over time, that support wanes. It may have been waning at the time uh, like 72, 73, something like that, but uh, it, 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 it still had its effect. Any indication that the, uh, well, comparisons between the American protests and there, uh, and uh, any indication that support for it might be waning? For for what for Hong Kong? Yeah, in Hong Kong. Any, any I don't I don't see any sign of it waning in Hong Kong. In terms of lessons from the U.S., I right. I, I mean, first of all, let, let me challenge your premise. I I think that uh, the U.S. protests evolved because you know, like I, I remember in '68 going door to door for Gene McCarthy. I was right. a uh, high school senior. And you know, getting you know practically threatened physically uh-huh. uh, by people uh, for you know advocating against the Vietnam War yes. at the time, uh-huh. uh, and we were you know clean for Gene. I sh- I cut my hair. I wore a jacket. You know, it's like I'd never worn a jacket, and, <laughs> and uh, you know we were we were very very uh, polite and peaceful and. Uh, and after you get stomped by the comms a few times, I got arrested at the Pentagon and jailed for three days in Occoquan Federal Prison in the uh, October 67 demonstration. Ah, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, it, those things harden you a little. And uh-huh. you, you, and, and the, so the protests became more, uh, 
you know, more disorderly, dis, uh, less polite, less obedient to permits and sure. routes that you had to follow and things. And and uh, and then we had days of rage in 72 yeah, in Washington yep. where we tried to shut the city down. 71, uh, actually. And confronted police. And we had, at the same time, as you mentioned, the weather underground. I, I think, you know, there were there were times when the even the weather underground went overboard and and people got killed un, unintentionally yes. like in the Wisconsin right. uh University of Wisconsin bombing uh they, they didn't know that a guy was going to be working all night right, <laughs> a right. grad student yeah. and and so he died in the bomb but they thought they were bombing an empty an empty research right. lab that right. was associated with the war uh program uh but and some of them got killed themselves in in oh, yeah. mishandling weapons the bombs they were making but uh, the, the the i think you arguably the violence uh just like the panther uh mm-hmm. militancy uh also you know led to uh crackdowns violence by the panthers violence against the panthers yes. those things i think um made the government pay more attention to the peaceful protests oh, uh, by Martin point. Luther King and stuff. I, I, I've often argued that Martin Luther King, would, with his you know, uh, peaceful, nonviolent pr- uh, marches and stuff, wouldn't have been as successful had there not been a militant black liberation yes, movement agreed. and riots in the cities uh, as the alternative. Yeah. Malcolm X was so, a necessary voice. Uh, but, but that's an aside from what's happening in Hong Kong. I think the, in Hong Kong, I, I'm not so sure that they've been studying the U.S. protest movement as much as they've been studying French protest movements well, is, <laughs> and, and uh, well, French, you know, yeah. movements in, in uh, countries like the Philippines and stuff. But, well, uh, but I think that they, that cons- the problem they face is that they're never going to achieve a lot of their demands. And China is never going to allow uh, a independent Hong Kong. Hong Kong will never be Singapore, um, you know, an independent city-state. It, it's simply not going to happen because of its history, it, it, the colonial legacy of it being stolen from China by the Brits, um, and uh, and just Chinese face in general. It's not going to be allowed to have an independent status. So that that demand is is uh, a loser. And um, Hmm. they might, I I think that if they're careful, if they don't go too far, if they don't, you know, wave those American flags again, uh, and they they calibrate their protests, Uh they have a chance of getting, uh, you know, when things calm down, getting the sop of a fully elected LegCo. Uh, which the Chinese had agreed to originally, and who knows? Maybe if they, you know, if Chinese, if the Chinese were less insecure, that you know, the okay. leadership is is insecure, and right now they're particularly insecure because uh, the Chinese people tolerate uh, they all they all resent and dislike very widely dislike the bureaucratic corrupt uh, single-party communist government that runs the place, but they tolerate it as long as it has been uh, gradually increasing the standard of living for most uh, Chinese people, and particularly urban Chinese people. Uh, and as long as they can keep doing that, uh, they, 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 they 
there's no uh, danger of them being overthrown. But if they can't keep the, the improving people's livelihoods, and right now things are getting harder to do because the economy is slowing down, they feel very nervous. They they aren't delivering, you know. Right. And and then you know that my my, my I'll tell you my uh, experience with Chinese uh, culture and Chinese people is that they have a phenomenal ability to suffer and to bear up under you know conditions that that we we would consider uh, inconceivably intolerable small apartments you know uh grinding jobs uh and and, and all of that uh they have that ability to do it but they they also have this uh this rage that comes out sometimes when when things confront them that they can't take anymore which you know wow. does eventually happen i've seen it in settings like uh, <laughs> just waiting in line for a bus that's too small to take everybody, and there's this this press to get into the bus, and you know suddenly somebody uh, hurts somebody accidentally, and it turns into a melee that spreads like in those you know cartoons of you know silent cartoons where one guy hits and misses and hits another guy, and it keeps spreading. Um, there's just this rage that suddenly erupts, and that's what revolutions are in China: is people suddenly uh, just mm. losing it and saying, "I won't take it anymore." But normally, they'll take anything. They 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 endure, you know. And I think the Chinese government knows that, and and so th- this all coming when it does at a time of stressed economy in China has the uh, leadership in Beijing very uptight. But there. But, you suggest it sounds like you're saying very clearly Hong Kong is not going to be uh, independent. It's it's not going to be that way. It's going to be as it is now. But so the worry the worry at the leaders in Beijing is that there'll be some you know that that they'll see perhaps and learn that the protest can be effective when they you know say I'm not going to take anymore uh, and that that worries the Chinese. But do they have? I mean, does it sounds like their hold on power does not depend on the actual, uh, in, you know, enforcement of direct violence. People just, are, as you say, are willing to suffer. But what do you think the outcome will be in, in you know, look in the crystal ball for Hong Kong and for China when they, you know, when these protests are so obviously effective? Well, that's why I'm thinking if, to, to, I think the best outcome would be if, uh, you know, China weathers the current economic crisis, which may get worse before it gets better, if there's a global recession again. Um, but if they come out of that, um, and, you know, the, 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 uh, um, the concerns in Hong Kong will not go away about uh, wanting to have more democratic control right. over the society, it may be that China will loosen up again, um, hmm. domestically feel more confident that uh, things are going well there, and then they're going to look at Hong Kong and they may say, you know, 
we can we can loosen up in Hong Kong too, and uh, you know it's not going to we 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 are not worried about it being taken away. You know, like trying to rebel and you know and be a secessionist state that would be terrible for them. They, if they, they if the worst would be if there was a secessionist movement because there are all these fringe territories around China that uh, it has conquered over the years. Right. You know, Manchuria, uh, Inner Mongolia, Tibet, uh, Xinjiang, especially. You know, all these places that that aren't really Chinese that are now part of greater China, uh, they, they worry about losing at some point if if the center doesn't hold. And Hong Kong would be, you know, the worst case for them yeah. if, they, if they started to happen there. So if they don't feel that threat uh, and they feel more confident, um, they might loosen up on Hong Kong and figure, you know, if they if we let if we let them have their autonomy, uh-huh. they're not going to want to be uh, separate. And they're not then, and all this will die down, and it'll get quiet. If they're smart, yeah, that would be the thing to do. But they're not going to be smart unless they're confident. Ah, uh, <laughs> and when they're uh, you know feel attacked, it's it's hard to uh, be smart about it as well. Fascinating. Now it's the wrong time. It's going. The, the protests are coming at a at a stressed time in Beijing, and so uh, the 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 risk of a crackdown is greater now than it would be if they were feeling more confident about the the, the state of of the Beijing economy and Beijing's uh, control over things. So the the risk of a crackdown is greater now than it was uh, a couple of months ago. No, than it was a couple of years ago. Ah. Uh. You know, like during the umbrella movement, for example, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't. I think they were feeling much more confident now that they've got this trade war with the U.S. Yes. And, you know, and 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 the issues in the Taiwan in the uh, South China Sea with the U.S. Um, you know, things like that uh, have them nervous and and feeling put upon. So that makes it, them a little more uh, uh, <laughs> willing to take some risks with Hong Kong because they're worried about all this, you know, spinning out of control. Oh my so goodness. it's a difficult time. That, that's, that's the tightrope. And I think the students have to be somewhat aware that they're, they're dealing with a, like a, a wounded, a wounded tiger. Ah, yikes. That is, sounds quite dangerous indeed. Fascinating stuff. Thank you for shedding light into uh, this faraway issue that we don't get decent coverage here. If people are interested in uh, reading your stuff, you're oftentimes in uh, Counterpunch, but also thiscan'tbehappening.net. Yeah, everything I write, uh, I put on thiscan'tbehappening.net, which is a collectively run journalist news site of five journalists. Ah. Counterpunch basically runs uh, almost all our stuff. Excellent. Thank you so much, and let's hope for a uh, well, positive. You, let's hope for a positive outcome from all this in both Hong Kong and in China. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's a big part of the world. <laughs> it is. Thank you so much. Okay, Bert. Bye, bye. It's about freedom. I want freedom. freedom. That's what 
my girlfriend You know the drugstore man 